No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to the Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, the owner of the famous Joe's Stone Crab in Miami explains what it's like running a restaurant during Super Bowl week. You can feel the excitement building up. Fans are coming in. Lawrence Taylor is here. Ed Newman is here who played on the Dolphins. You know, it's 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 amazing. The stars are coming. The sports legends are coming. It's a shot of adrenaline that we so dearly love having. Plus, former Chiefs All-Pro running back Christian Okoye describes how he helped create an NFL fan base on another continent. I was the first African that actually played the game. So they still root for Kansas City Chiefs. And uh, now that we've had a few that played for other teams. We have uh, fans that root for like Chicago and, and a few other teams. Also, WNBA superstar Brianna Stewart reflects on the life of Kobe Bryant. Kobe was a person that affected a lot of people. I mean, everyone on our national team for sure. The biggest thing that we could do and the way we could respect and carry on Kobe's legacy the most was play and play at the highest level we could. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. The Super Bowls this weekend, and the world is heading to Miami for the big game, which means just about anybody who is anybody and others as well wants to go to Joe's Stonecrab, the legendary restaurant in South Beach. We'll be speaking with the fourth generation owner of Joe's Stonecrab later in the show. But first, we're joined by a two time Super Bowl champion and also one of the great Kansas City Chiefs of all time as Kansas City goes to the Super Bowl for the first time in half a century. We'll be joined later in the show by one of his former teammates, Christian Okoye, another all-time great chief. But first, it is a pleasure to be joined by the six-time Pro Bowler, the first-team All-Pro from 1993, the great defensive lineman, Neil Smith. Neil, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Neil, what does it mean to you that the Chiefs finally are going back to the Super Bowl, something they did not do in your nine seasons in Kansas City. Not that I'm blaming you. Well, I'm just excited for those guys. Uh, they finally, you know, broke that that um, that little jinx we had for so many years, you know, um, playing in the AFC Championship games and not having to get over that hump. And um, I think that Coach Andy Reid um, done a wonderful job with the coaches that he have and also – the great players that he have put together a great team um, to represent uh, the AFC this year in the Kansas City Chiefs. Neil, you were there, as I said, for nine seasons, 88 through 96. You had, of course, your late great teammate on defense, Derek Thomas. Derek died at the age of 33. He happened to die in Miami after a car crash that had taken place uh, earlier, uh, about 10 days earlier, as I recall, in Missouri on his way to fly to a game. You were so close with Derek. Um, this would be a moment in which he would be celebrated as one of the icons in franchise history as well. When you think about Derek and what what kind of a player he was, what kind of a man he was, what immediately comes to mind? Well, what immediately comes to mind to me is that I don't think Derek Thomas knew how great he was. Um, and, you know, 
the death of Derek Thomas was one of the hardest deaths I've ever taken in my life. And I lost a father about five years ago, and I never had that feeling like I lost in, in Derek Thomas as a teammate, a brother, and as a, as a person, I would say that one of the most uplifting persons in the world. And I say that, you know, on, on the week of, um, of Kobe Bryant's death, what these type of players and these type of athletes mean, you know, to a community and to the, you know, to the world. I understand that Kobe, you know, I, I see that Kobe was a global guy. I looked at Derek Thomas' life being short, even shorter than Kobe's, that Derek is one of those guys that uh, who look, he was looking to, for that type of destiny that, uh, you know, after, you know, that uh, Kobe Bryant had. And what these people mean to 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 to, to the sports in itself. Um, he meant he meant to Kansas City with um, the NFL, you know um, that that you know that Derek did. Um, he does some of the some of the things that I think that was mind boggling. Um, was a great player that that can definitely change the game, that can take it to another level. Um, and if he wanted to play, if he really wanted to not be stopped, he could. He was that guy, and and I fed off of that. I fed off of every narrative that he had. I seen the way he, you know, he didn't practice the way he played, <laughs> but he sure played when he when he when he wanted to. Uh, he was definitely not a practice player, but what a fun-loving guy. And you know, it's not a day that go by. Um, even if I look at the clock, I see 58. Um, um, that's not a day go by. Um, thinking about Derek and what he meant to me and, and how he came in and how how short his life was. It's been over 20 years, the death of Derek Thomas this year. Um, it's so profound that I've, it's almost been about that long since I, I came to Miami and buried Derek. And this week means something special to me because I'm going to go back to the great side for the first time. And just happened that the Chiefs is here. Um, it's going to be just touching to me because I know if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, and hopefully they do, what that meant that what that would have meant to Derek Thomas because he, you know, we we put it on the field, we left it out there, and 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 boy, by God, we just fell so short so many times that you know that here it is in Miami that that's hoping that this might be the prayer that he if he ever know that we need it, uh, this is going to be a, a great game this week. We're speaking with Neil Smith. The great uh, defensive lineman for the Kansas City Chiefs in the 1980s and 90s who would win two Super Bowls with the Denver Broncos in Super Bowl 32 and 33. We're speaking about his former teammate, the late, great Derek Thomas, who died 20 years ago this month after a car crash in Missouri. Um, I got to admit, Neil, when, when I heard the news about Kobe Bryant on Sunday, I thought about I thought about Derek Thomas and I was covering that story when it happened 20 years ago. And I, and I thought also about another great defensive player from that era, Reggie White, who died very young, not, not in a, uh, a vehicular accident like, like Kobe Bryant and Derek Thomas. Um, but, but very young, too young. Uh, and I've been thinking about what it must mean to the Chiefs to be in Miami where Derek was from. And for you, we're going to speak, be speaking to Christian Okoye as well. Um, when are you going to go visit Derek's gravesite? Well, I'm looking here in the next few days. Um, I just got to Miami on today. We're speaking on Wednesday, yeah. Yes, and I'm looking to go here um, here in the next few days. And you know, um, it's this guy is just uh, he, he never want to leave me. So I'm back. Now I'm back with him. He always thought that I would always return as being a Kansas City Chiefs, and it was my intent to do that. And it just it's just the timing was that 
you know, they was not ready to accept me back, you know, as a player. But I live still in the Kansas City area. And also, I actually took over Derek Thomas Foundation, the third loan foundation, where this is Derek, baby boy. I mean, his, this, he loves about the reading program for his kids and, uh, you know, the impact in, in the Kansas City area. And when I took over uh, Derek Foundation, I knew I had to give up my foundation to do something for a friend that I know that meant so much to him. So we're still there in the area. We're still trying to and will help every kid that we can in this reading program and to excel. And, and it's so good to 20 years later, we got kids that have been through this program where they come back and they're lawyers, they're doctors, and, and it makes you seem that, wow, this is his vision. This is what he wants. Uh, for a friend to give something back, this is what I gave back to Derek, and this is what I will continue to give back to Derek as long as I live. Great testament to his vision and his passion. We're speaking with Neil Smith. Neil, th- this this Chiefs team, uh, which has been so impressive for the last couple of years with young Patrick Mahomes at quarterback, uh, the things that he's doing, just, just astounding. Um, what's it like for you watching this team? It's exciting. You know, uh, football has changed, you know, um, for the best, I think. Um, you know, with, with, with the, not the hard hit, I mean, the hitting, the, you know, the hit across the boundary. And, 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 and you can see the athletes come out of guys even more um, the way they, they, they try to protect, you know, guys from getting hits. And, and it's kind of different for me because, you know, I was never taught that way, and I just don't understand it. But I'm not the only one that played in the You 90s. were allowed to hurt quarterbacks, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we was always seeking to find and then destroy. But, I, you know, I, I think I could have learned. If I could have learned to tackle also with my shows, I think I could have did it. But, I, you know, when I was on my way out, they were trying to make a statement. And that ran me out faster because um, when they started to – change the rules that's when I was on my way out I just didn't understand what they were saying I didn't understand what I was doing um as far as you know making tackles I've been doing it forever I was getting personal fouls I was getting fined and I was like okay I think it's time for me to get out because I have no idea what I'm doing and that's more than 20 years ago I don't think of it as changing in the late 90s the way you're talking about it but it was even then yeah I actually played up to 2000 so they was trying to change it was it was they was making an effort to change um the game so and, and and I knew then that, you know, I could see where it was going, but it's still fun. It's still fun to watch. Um, I just don't like all the scoring. I just don't like all the penalties, that, you know, against the defense, that the defensive guy can't actually do anything. But, hey, you know what? It's still, you know, it's still, it's still one of the funnest games to watch on Sunday. I'm glad I just don't have to play it anymore. <laughs> Neil Smith, the two-time Super Bowl champion, the Kansas City Chiefs legend, sharing memories about playing the game and playing alongside his friend Derek Thomas. Neil, thanks so much. Enjoy the game Sunday. Thank you. It's so good to hear from you. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. When the Super Bowl's in Miami, and even when it's not, the world heads to one restaurant in particular, by some measures the most successful restaurant ever, anywhere, at any time. Joe Stonecrab, which specializes in that wonderfully succulent crustacean, is more than an institution. It's history and glamour and delicious. We are joined by Steve Saywitz, the owner of Joe's, whose great-grandfather was the original Joe, Joe Weiss, who started serving food in South Florida in 1913, and Steve's grandfather, Jesse, Joe's son, turned Joe's into the legend it remains. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, and thank you for those kind words. Truer words have never been spoken, certainly not on this show. Uh, (laughs) 
how crazy is it right now as we speak on Wednesday night and uh, everyone wants to get into Joe's? Well, you can you can feel the excitement building up. Uh, there's a wait right now as we wait. There's people sitting in, you know, all over the dining room. Uh, fans are coming in. Uh, truth of the matter is Lawrence Taylor is here and uh, Harry uh, Harry Carson is here at the you know at the same time Ed Newman is here who played on the Dolphins you know it's 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 amazing so we're getting geared up uh the stars are coming uh the the sports legends are coming and uh our staff you know we're, we're it's an extra god it's a shot of adrenaline that we so dearly love having, you know, and Miami's geared for it, you know, so we're, we're, we're excited. But Steve, you're, you're packed anyway. Like, is it really that much more business for you guys or is it just a, kind of a pain in the butt because you can't get in anyway, even if the Super Bowl's in uh, Los Angeles this week? Well, every who's who in the world seems to want to get a table at the same exact time. Right. You know, they want an 8 o'clock table on a Friday or Saturday night. They're willing to do whatever it takes, and that's during Super Bowl particularly. Normally, we're at about a 95, 90, 95% capacity all the time. This is a 110% capacity where we do need an area, for instance, upstairs where we will uh, logistically, we have uh, uh, a place for, you know, peop, uh, stars and notables and people with a lot of notoriety where they can wait a little bit and schmooze a little bit before they come down down the stairs to sit in the main dining room. Because we get very large parties. It's hard to get those tables put together. We've got lots of demands. We've got people from American Express, Visa, all of them. You know, they all want to converge at the same time and impress their clients and experience Joe's. We're speaking with Steve Saywitz, the fourth generation owner of Joe's Stone Crab, the legendary restaurant at the very bottom, essentially, of South Beach, which has been serving its stone crabs and other specialties for generations. Um, four generations, F-O-U-R and F-O-R as well. Now, Steve, uh you knew my father well, Dick Schaap. If there's one thing that made him happy, it was a night at Joe's. And uh, he was he, he considered perhaps one of his most prized possessions, if that's the way to put it, the ability to get into Joe's. And he always said, he quoted the late Dan Jenkins. He said, if you wanted to cover the Super Bowl, the thing to do was just situate yourself at the bar at Joe's and watch everybody you needed to speak to during the course of the week come through Joe's. You never had to go anywhere else. Uh, tell us a little bit about the history of pro football and your establishment. Okay, well, my grandfather uh, was very responsible for getting Super Bowls to Miami, uh, starting with the very, you know, the first Super Bowl we got was Super Bowl number two. And that was Jesse Weiss, my grandfather. And he was very friendly with many of the owners in the NFL, he used to go to those meetings, uh, sometimes out in Phoenix, wherever they took him. I mean, uh, the, the, the Hunts were, were, were friends of his, and uh, the Myras were friends, and the Roonies were friends, and he knew them all on a, you know, a first-name basis. In fact, uh, he used to kind of wait for the tickets to come in, if you know what I mean. You know, he, was, he was big on Super Bowl tickets, uh, and not that he went to the game. But Miami and, and Super Bowls were, you know, went hand in hand, and Joe's was uh, one of the beneficiaries of, of all, the, all these huge games. And we've been blessed. But I'll tell you, you mentioned your dad. Uh, I loved your father. 
And um, he was an amazing part of of Super Bowl in general and with his Green Bay Packer party that he had in Jesse's room. I mean, your dad held court and he was just the classiest guy, sweet man. Um, and I, you know, he always remembered me and you know what? I, I, I just want to say, you know, you're the same kind of guy. And I, and I just want to let you know that. That's very kind. I really appreciate that, Steve. Thank you. I got to ask you, Steve, um, Everybody in the world, as we've established, wants to go to Joe's, particularly this week. What happens when you tell some big celebrity, some big shot, muckety-muck, sorry, we cannot help you. You got to just stand in line like like everybody else. Well, I don't like to tell them that. Um, <laughs> I, I let somebody else do it, like JT, six foot, six foot four. <laughs> but no, we, you, a lot of them actually call beforehand even though we don't take reservations that many of them will have somebody call on their behalf and but at super bowl it's very very hard to do i mean what happens is friends of friends call and they'll call and and you know vouch for these people or vie for them and try to you know lobby to get their friends in it's it's kind of fun especially around super bowl and we're dealing with it right now but um Sometimes they just have to be patient. We do our best. You know, when people have those kinds of special needs, because you don't want somebody who's a megastar standing in line waiting. You know, they're going to be, for their own safety, for their own well-being and, and all that, we just don't want to harass them so, or have them harassed. So we will, you know, we'll, we'll move them around and get, put, seat them in the office. You know, and I did that with Joe Namath one time many years ago. I mean, just the name off the top of my head. I remember him waiting in the office when I was a kid. Um, you know, it, it's it's crazy. I mean, there's so many. We handle it. That's all I can say is if we know they're coming, we keep our eyes out on the table. Our floor managers and my general manager, uh, Brian Johnson, he's all over it. And Ed at the front door and JT, they keep their eyes out. We We know they're coming. We're on it. And there's a lot of restaurants that know how to do that, too. Steve, thanks so much for catching up with us this week. Thank you, Jeremy. Take care. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Super Bowl 54 is here nearly. And for the first time in half a century since Super Bowl 4, the Kansas City Chiefs are in the Super Bowl. Despite having some very good teams and great players, the Chiefs spent a long time in the wilderness. One of the best Chiefs ever was a running back who led the league in rushing in 1989 with nearly 1,500 yards. He was a first-team All-Pro that year and a two-time Pro Bowler, even though he didn't play football until about the age of 20. In fact, he came to the U.S. from Nigeria, his home country, to throw the discus at Azusa Pacific in California. It's a pleasure now to welcome to the sporting life the one and only Nigerian nightmare, Christian Okoye. Christian, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. Thank you. Christian, when was the first time you picked up an American football? Actually, I was 23 years old. Junior in college. That's just crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's crazy. 23, you'd never seen the game, you'd never played the game. You were at Azusa Pacific on a track scholarship. Uh, how did you get uh, approached to play football? 
You know, I, it happened uh, so that um, I, I was supposed to be in the 84 Olympics, and um, I wasn't picked to go to the Olympics by Nigeria, so I decided I'm going to try football. So I, uh, I jumped in, I, I spoke to my, uh, my football coach, and uh, he said, yeah, come on. And um, I started playing football for the first time in my life. How did you take to the game, Christian? Um, you know, I, um, I had a lot of friends that I played uh, track, you know, track and field with who actually was trying to convince me at first. And, of course, I didn't play football. I didn't know anything about it. And um, I keep saying no to them. But when Nigeria couldn't take me to the Olympics, I decided I'm going to try this game because... You know, since I can't run track anymore and I was too big to run football, to play football, I'm going to uh, try the game. So I jumped in and I tried it. It was ex- extremely difficult, extremely difficult when I started because it was strange. And, uh, but uh, my friends, uh, through encouragement from my coaches, my track coaches and my friends, I stayed with it. It was extremely difficult. I stayed with it, but, um, you know, here I am. We're speaking with Christian Okoye, the former Kansas City Chiefs running back who led the NFL in rushing yards in 1989. He was a first-team All-Pro that year. He did not start playing football until he was 23 years of age, and then just a couple of years later... He was the 35th overall selection in the second round of the 1987 NFL draft. What was it like, Christian, your third year in the league when you really became a superstar? Well, I, t- I told this story yesterday at a group of, uh, to a group of people yesterday. Um, you know, I played my first year and that second year, and, uh, and then the coach Frank Gans got fired, and Carl Peterson came into town. He hired Marty Schoenheimer. And Marty, when he came, he flew me in from California, and he says he wanted to talk to me. So I came in town, out of his office, and he says, Christian, very nice to meet you. He says, uh, I realize your background is track and field. You haven't played football much. He says, uh, you look like you're in very good shape. He says, are you going to be ready to run the football? I said, Coach, that's the only thing I know how to do in football. I'll, I'll run the football. He says, are you ready? Will you be ready? I said, I'm ready now. <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> lo and behold, in 1989, I ran the ball 370 uh, uh, times. You know, I led the league in rushing. And that conversation took only about, I would say, three minutes. Mm. Coming all the way from California. You know, you, you um, as I said, you had... You had an excellent career, but it wasn't it wasn't a long career. You suffered some injuries. You ended up playing only a full six seasons. What what was it specifically that ended your career, Christian? You know, I had some nagging injuries here and there. There's no major injury that just took me out of the game. Um, in 1993, I had a I had a, a minor knee injury, so the team was going to put me on the injury reserve because Marcus Allen just came in. Um, so I decided I'm going to give it up. I retired. That was it. That was it. That was it. Did you have any, ever have any regrets about walking away from the game at that point? No, I don't have any regrets because, you know, as you know, when you play football, as you grow older, you start feeling all these things, you know, shoulders, hips and knees and things like that. I'm feeling them now. If I had played longer, I would have been worse right now. I would have been worse. I'd be feeling worse. So... Um, I'm very glad that I uh, I walked away when I walked away. And you were an older um, 
you were an older player for having only been in the league for six seasons at that point anyway. What you were I think thirty two when you walked away. Yes, I was I was uh thirty two when I walked away and uh, I was a twenty six year old rookie. <laughs> Unbelievable career, um considering especially that you didn't play the game uh until much later than almost maybe later than any other great player in the annals of football going back 150 years. We're speaking with Christian Okoye, the former Chris, the former Kansas City Chiefs All-Pro who led the league in rushing in 1989. And Christian, you played for some good teams with some very talented players, um, but you guys never quite got over the hump, never got to the Super Bowl. What does it mean to you now as a Kansas City Chief to see your old team, the only team you ever played for, in the Super Bowl for the first time in half a century. Man, I am so happy to see this team going this far. You know, I mean, all these years, as you said, we had a great team in the past, but we never, we never made it past the AFC Championship. And seeing um, Coach Reed and this uh, bunch of guys, Mahomes uh, and Tyreek Hill and, and all those guys, making it happen this year, I'm so happy for them. And, you know, when they win the Super Bowl, I wanted to. We're all family here. Kansas City Chiefs is the only team that I played for and uh, the only team I cheered for. So it's family to me. Um, So I'm so happy. I'm so happy they are here and I'm here with them. Back in Nigeria, because you were such a big star, are there still a lot of people who root for Kansas City? Oh, definitely. Definitely. People still root for Kansas City because uh, I was the first Nigerian that actually played football. We had a couple that were kickers, but um, I was the first, uh, uh, actually maybe the first African that actually played the game. Uh, so they still root for uh, Kansas City Chiefs. And uh, now that we've had a few that played for other teams, we have uh, fans that root for like Chicago and, you know, Houston, Harlow, um, Houston Texans and, and a few other teams. I would imagine, Christian, um, you know, with the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, you're probably thinking about uh, your teammate Derek Thomas, one of the great defensive players ever in the NFL, who died tragically uh, as the result of a car accident 20 years ago. I think Derek was only 32 at the time, maybe 33. And uh, and what you know, and he never got to play in that Super Bowl. Um, but now it's down in Miami which happens to be uh, where Derek died, although the accident took place in Missouri. Are, are you thinking about Derek this week? Oh, yes. I, I'm think, thinking about him. I actually uh, tweeted uh, or posted a picture of him a couple of days ago, and uh, he is still beloved in Kansas City, and we miss him and we miss him big time. Because, you know, um, as you know, your dad was good friends with, with Derek. He was. And uh, when your dad was... When your dad will come in town, we go to a restaurant and sit around and just, you know, talk a lot, <laughs> you know. So people, many people, many people love Derek, and uh, uh, we miss him, and we miss him a lot. Such a big personality, such a great talent, um, just always the life of the party filled up the room with his charisma and his smile whenever he was there. I'm thinking about him, too. Christian Okoye, the former Kansas City Chief, one of the great players in franchise history. Christian, thanks so much for speaking to us for our Super Bowl special this week. Jeremy, thank you so much for having me on. God bless you, my man. Go Chiefs. 
This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. She's a four-time NCAA champion, a four-time Final Four Most Outstanding Player, a WNBA champion, a WNBA MVP, a WNBA Finals MVP, and an Olympic gold medalist. How is that for a resume? We were speaking of the great Brianna Stewart, who just played her first game in more than nine months after rupturing her Achilles. Brianna, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling good. Um, you know, as you just said, I had my first game back um, a few days ago, and um, it felt really good to get on the court. And I think, you know, I wasn't looking too much into it other than being on the court, helping the team win, and um, not thinking, just playing. And that's what I did. It was um, it was an emotional game, obviously. You guys were playing UConn, the U.S. national team playing UConn, shortly after the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gigi, who wanted to play at UConn. What, what was the atmosphere like, Brianna? Um, you know, you, you said it. It was, it was very emotional. Um, you know, when the news broke the day before, nobody wanted to believe it, and everybody was, was really in shock. And um, even uh, the morning of game day was, was tough, you know, because shoot-around was very silent. Um, Kobe was a person that affected, you know, a lot of people. I mean, everyone on our national team for sure. Um, everyone on the current UConn team because Gigi was such a, a big supporter and, and they went to a lot of games. But, you know, we knew that day was going to be hard. Um, but the biggest thing that we could do and, and the, the way we could respect and carry on Kobe's legacy the most was play and uh, play at the highest level we could. We're speaking with Brianna Stewart, the four-time NCAA champion, the WNBA champion, the WNBA MVP, and Olympic gold medalist who is hoping, oh, in about eight or nine months to win a second Olympic gold medal. The United States trying to win, I believe, its seventh consecutive gold medal in women's basketball. Um, you play in the WNBA, Brianna. You play overseas. You play for Team USA. All these, you won the FIBA World Cup last year as well in 2018, and you were the MVP of that tournament. When you have so many gold medals and championships already, what, what would another Olympics title mean to you? Um, I mean, I think another Olympic gold would, um, it would mean a lot to me. I think, you know, the last Olympics, I was the youngest one there. I was just out of college. Um, a lot wasn't expected from me, and um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really play that much. I was more so there as a sponge and uh, to be prepared for the next one. And now, you know, we're four years later, and the next one is coming up. And my role is different uh, with the team, and I'm just looking forward to to being out there and trying to make an impact and making sure that uh, we win the seventh straight gold medal and. Sue and Diana uh, win their fifth gold medal. You were saying last week, I saw you quoted, um, saying that you don't know how to play 70%. You only know 100% or zero. And you're still in the process of um, getting back into complete playing shape after what happened nine months ago. So how are you going to be able to not push too hard? Um. 
I mean, I think now it's it's not about not pushing too hard. I think, you know, when I was a few months back, like I would be able to go on the court, but I could only go 70%, which is very difficult because like, how do you know what 70% is? Um, but now when I'm on the court, like I, I can, I'm, I'm going to play my hardest, you know, I'm going to go at a hundred percent. And now it's just about uh, making sure that I have a, a grace period to kind of get back into the rhythm of things. And, and my minutes are limited in both games and practices. And, um, you know, every day gets a little bit better. Every week gets a little bit better. And, you know, I, I still have to go through the, the process of getting back, you know, now I'm on the court and I can play, but, um, it's just a different part of the rehab, if that makes sense. Maya Moore, uh, who preceded you at UConn, one of the great players in UConn history, great player in the WNBA with Minnesota. She announced last week that she's not going to play in the upcoming WNBA season again. She's not going to be part of the Olympic qualifying process because she's committed to working for social justice reform and in particular championing the case of one man she believes was wrongly convicted in Missouri and wrongly imprisoned. Well, what is what is it? You know, as somebody who knows Maya more, what do you think about that and and her decision not to be part of part of the game for the at least the upcoming year? I mean, I think that you know Maya, um, she realizes that there's more to life than just basketball. And you know, as a person who's had a very successful career, she's invested in in something um, that also takes great importance in her life. And, you know, um, I think it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, so I think that, you know, at the WNBA and everything like that, we're proud of her and we support uh, all decisions she makes because, um, you know, like I said, there's other things in life than basketball. And, you know, sometimes you don't realize that until you're, you're away from it. You know, like I realized it while I was, uh, going through my rehab process and and she realized it uh, um, after she sat out her first year that you know she can make an impact in a, a number of ways and basketball is just one of course the Olympic tournament uh, coming up in about seven months taking place in Tokyo this year you're going to Serbia in the next few days after you play in Louisville this weekend. You're going to Serbia for the Olympic qualifying tournament. Even though you guys have already qualified, uh, you're required by FIBA to take part in this tournament. W- what do you guys hope to get out of it? Um, I mean, the, the biggest thing we hope to get out of it is obviously, you know, we, we, we want to win these games uh, because we, we never want to lose. But it's nice to have some time with the team before, you know, Tokyo, because we're going to go right into WNBA and have only a little bit of time to get together right before the Olympics. Um, So to kind of build off of the chemistry that we already have, uh, for me personally, um, just taking advantage of getting some more um, in-game action um, and and having every game be a little bit better uh, coming back from this injury. But uh, I'm excited for it. I'm looking forward to, to playing to being back with the team, you know, it's it's easy when you're with such a talented group and you just have to go out and play and, and not have to do too much. Brianna, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, you did a story on E60 on ESPN with my colleague Julie Foudy, and a lot of people were very, um, very moved by it. 
you, you bravely talked about your experience as a girl growing up in Syracuse being, being abused sexually by a family member, by, by your uncle, your mother's sister's husband. And, um, I'm wondering in the year and a half since then, what, what kind of an impact do you think telling your story has made on other people? Um, you know, telling my story has made a, a bigger impact than, than I knew it would, if that makes sense. You know, um, when I published this story, I wasn't sure if I was going to get positive or negative feedback because you never know in the world of social media and that type of thing. Um, but overall, it was 100% positive across the board. And, you know, even still, like, um, I'll finish a game and people will be like, thank you for, for speaking out about your story. You know, you helped me, you helped save my life. Um, or if they had a family member who's been through a similar situation. And it just goes to show, like, you know, everybody's going through something. And I think sometimes that, that gets overlooked. Everyone's going through or has gone through something. Um, and it's it's how you, you know, continue on from that. You know, sometimes life is really tough. And, um, you know, you can go through a hard thing and still do whatever you want to do in life. It's extremely brave, and I know it did make an impact on a lot of people. Brianna Stewart looking this year for her second Olympic gold medal to go along with all those other trophies and accolades. Brianna, thank you so much for joining us here on The Sporting Life. I know how busy you are right now. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.